take your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter number 4. John's Gospel in chapter 4. We're going to begin reading here in verse number 3. Jesus uh, finds himself at odds with the Pharisees. That's no shock if you know the Bible and you know the story of the Gospels. You know that he is constantly at odds uh, with those that, uh, that twisted the Scriptures to suit their own purpose. Uh, and so in verse number 3, he's leaving uh, Jerusalem and heading back to uh, to Galilee and takes an unusual route. The Bible says there, he left Judea, departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near unto the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, I don't feel so bad about getting weary sometimes when I realize that even Jesus got wearied from a journey. Uh, there cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which, of a woman, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep from whence thou hast that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? He drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And read from her response that she's missing the point still. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here that are draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus answered to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Then when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And I want to speak this morning just simply on the thought, our theme, in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, as we come one more time this morning, we just ask that you'd meet with us, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would illuminate our minds to the truth of what you have for us here. 
Lord, may it be something that we can take and that will impact our daily lives and that will impact us from, from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a, a kind of a, I guess, a warning as we get into this is the start of a theme and probably at least a couple, if not three Sundays in this text. Uh, I'm going to have to give a lot of background. So it's uh, some of the information you may find a little tedious, but it's necessary really to understand what's being offered here and what Jesus is communicating. So bear with me. Sometimes the beginning of series can be that way a little bit. Uh, and so, but I'll, I'll try to keep it as interesting as possible to but get, give us the information that we have to have to build upon. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. And as he's leaving, he is essentially diffusing a tense moment uh, with the Pharisees. He, he does this frequently. There are times uh, when it will reach a boiling point and something's going to give, but it's not time yet for all of this that's going to lead to his crucifixion to come to a head. So what does he do? Many times you'll see him just back away. He'll get lost in the crowd. At times he'll disappear. He'll, uh, he'll leave the area and go somewhere else. And that's essentially what's taking place here. He's already been in kind of an, an argument with them. There's a lot going on with John the Baptist at this point. And he's just spent the first Passover, this three Passovers. He spent the first one in Jerusalem, the second one in Galilee, and then the last one, of course, in Jerusalem at the crucifixion. Uh, and so we, we see him here uh, leaving out. And now they have a certain route they like to take. They, they have a, a route, if you're a Jew, you avoid, uh, at, at, even at, at the cost of adding a lot of distance to your trip, Samaria. When she says, thou hast no dealings with Samaritans, there is a deep loathing that the Jews have to the, of the Samaritans. It's not by mistake that as Jesus sits there on the well that his disciples have been sent to buy food. He knew who he was there to meet. This is a divine appointment. This is not something that Jesus just randomly said, I think I'll take a different route today. I do that a lot. Sometimes my wife and I, we're going someplace that we go regularly, uh, and we're like, you know what? We're tired of the normal path. Let's take a different route. Uh, let's just find a different way uh, and, uh, and get to break up the monotony. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He is, he is on a mission he is going to meet this specific woman in this specific place at this specific moment in time. This is a divine appointment. And it's amazing, and don't miss the point, that one unnamed person in the Bible is important enough that Jesus let it dictate what his schedule and what his route would be. If that one lady is that important to him, so are you. And so am I. And so Jesus sets out, he goes this route to this despised place and he comes to Jacob's well and he engages in conversation with uh, this woman uh, that is referred to simply and we refer to simply as the woman at the well. The Bible never identifies her by name. Jesus reaches out to her. He's, he's loving on her, but appropriately so. She's not coming at this hour of the day, in the sixth hour, it's in the heat of the day. She's not coming at that time of the day because it's convenient for her. She's coming because she's shunned by her own culture and society uh, because she has uh, had five husbands and is living with someone that's not her husband. So she's been an, an immoral woman. She's living in immorality at the moment. Uh, and it's condemned even by the Samaritans at this point. And so she is coming to avoid the crowd so that 
she's not, that's not scorned upon uh, and riled upon, railed upon. Uh, she's a, a, just avoiding it. But Jesus knows and he's there. He's sitting there on the edge of the well waiting for her uh, to come and draw. And she's taken aback by his response to her. Any other man would have said, oh, I don't want to be seen talking to you in public. I don't want people talking about me. Uh, but Jesus is there waiting for her. And not only does he speak to her, but he speaks to her with kindness and compassion. He, he meets her where she is. And he offers her living water. So in verse 9, he's kind to her. She says, why are you being kind to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Uh, you, you, you hate me. And then he says, listen, if you understood who it was that was talking to you, you would have said, give me some living water. She clearly doesn't understand the meaning because she says, I want that living water. Give me some so that I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. She, she's missing the point. She's, she's, she's not really getting what it is that he's trying to communicate. And then to help her understand, he confronts her sin. By the way, Anytime that you share the gospel with someone and anytime that someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they must be confronted with their sin. If I don't sin, I don't need a Savior. I have to understand that I have a need. I, I, it's not just about praying a prayer. It's about understanding that I have offended God and I can do nothing on my own power to reconcile myself to God. But Jesus loves me so much and God loved me so much that he made a way for me to be reconciled. But a godly sorrow of that is, is necessary. So I come and he comes and he says, listen, uh, you, you're wanting this living water, but you're not really understanding what it is. Call your husband. He very discreetly says to her, what is he doing? He's taking what is the most obvious sinful problem and need in her life and he's confronting it. He's not making an accusation. He's, he's, not, he, he's not trying to uh, guilt trip her. He's not trying to be condescending to her. He, he asks what really in most courses of life would just be a normal question. Here I am in a public place talking to a strange lady that I've never seen. Uh, if, if, if people come and look, what will they say or think? It's not a, an out of the way question. Call your husband. Yeah. Let me explain this further. I don't have a husband. Ah, you're being honest. It's true you don't have a husband, but you have had five and you're living with someone now like you are married. And in her sheepish response, I mean, I can almost kind of see the deer in the head look and shame. You must be a prophet. How do you know this about me? How do you know that this is my problem? And, and again, uh, he's there. Now, where are they? Now, obviously, they're in a public place at the well. But where are they really? She's standing there with the giver of life and the obstacles of religion and tradition stand between her and a relationship with the Father. They stand between her and a relationship with the Son of God. And I'm saying this morning that many times the greatest obstacle that we face is when we allow the, the worship of God that we share together corporately in a church setting to become a religion or a religious exercise or activity devoid of relationship with God in heaven. The purpose of this is relationship. So let me give you some background. And I, it's important because there's so much that's here 
that's not here. At least it's not plainly spelled out and you have to really do some research to kind of get and capture. We, we all intuitively get and we've heard countless sermons preached from this text that have explained that the Jews hate the Samaritans in large part because it is a melting pot. Whenever at one point they were invaded and they were taken to live somewhere else and they came back and the Assyrians settled people in that they, uh, that they intermarried and that they, they interworshipped, they, they blended their religions and that is, of a truth, a large part of the reason for the animosity between the Jews uh, and, uh, and the Samaritans. But you have to back up and get a bigger picture. Solomon's temple was the epicenter of glory and worship, of God's glory with the kind of glory of God shining down on it, uh, of, of centralized worship. Uh, it was uh, in all of its glory in a united Israel, a place that was unparalleled in splendor and glory. And it was of all united Israel, the place that they looked to and said, this is the power and the presence of God. This is where we come uh, to worship God. But Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in or around 586 BC. And it's destroyed and it's looted, the treasures of it, the golden walls, or the gold's peeled off the walls and uh, the pillars and all of the different things and the, 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 the beautiful artifacts are taken to Babylon and, uh, and stored away and then used there. But Babylon would fall. And Babylon falls and the Persians take over. And you see this play out in the book of Daniel, uh, where when Daniel is first taken from Israel into to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and of course the, the fiery furnace and the dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and all that went on there, and then uh, the handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar, uh, and then the lion's den where he is uh, with Darius. Darius is a Persian king. So you see with Belshazzar, when the hand writes on the wall, the collapse of the Babylonian empire and the rise of the Persian empire, and Darius uh, becomes the king of Persia, uh, and, he is, and he is there, and then uh, that, that you've the, the sub-commanders with them. And so during that time, you see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come to play. And so Cyrus, as king of Persia, uh, is, uh, is, goes to Ezra and dispatches him to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The book of Ezra covers a period of about 80 years. And so he's there rebuilding the temple and restoring the temple. Uh, and then about 14 years after Ezra goes back, uh, Nehemiah goes to build the walls and to restore uh, the function of the city. And so you see worship and the, the civil structure re-brought uh, re together and uh, re-instituted re in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and so in the meantime, after the collapse of Solomon's temple, Solomon, Solomon, after his death, the kingdom is divided. And so as the kingdom is divided uh, under the, the, with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom is divided and you have Israel and then you have Judah uh, as two separate nations and Judah being only Judah and Benjamin and then all the other 10 tribes making up the nation of Israel. Uh, and so they have to have a capital. So what is their capital? Their capital is Sychar in Samaria. And so they're there and they, they have now 
a destroyed temple, uh, or they will have a destroyed temple of Solomon. So during the kingdom age, you've got all of this, still the attention to Jerusalem, but they build for themselves there a place of worship, and, uh, and, and things begin to evolve around their own capital. But still, Solomon's temple reigns supreme. It is a thing of splendor and glory, until it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So you have the destruction, you have the dispersion, then you have uh, them coming back. And as a result of this, in the divided kingdom and in the institution, even with Solomon, of the high places and the blending of the worship of God and the worship of idols, you now have uh, a diminished view of the centralized worship. In other words, the temple of Solomon, as Ezra rebuilds it, is nowhere near the standard or the beauty that it was when it was first built by Solomon. It, 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 they, they took what was this iconic, beautiful structure, they reduced it to nothing. They took all the beauty and the value away from it. Ezra comes back and rebuilds it, but it's nothing like it was whenever Solomon built it. And so now it makes it easier to accept another place of worship, which, is, which essentially comes to be in Sychar on Mount Gerizim. Now, as we look at this and we see uh, the Persians here come and they allow the rebuilding of this, uh, there's some things that take place, and I, I don't have the time this morning unless we want to stay here till 4 o'clock this afternoon. I think my battery said I could, but I don't think you'd appreciate it very much. Uh, and so, uh, I, I'm just, you may have to go, you feel free to go back and do some digging. But what takes place is Ezra's rebuilding the temple. 14 years later, Nehemiah shows up, starts rebuilding the wall, and Sanballat, the, the governor of, the Persian governor of this area comes and, uh, and is railing on Nehemiah and just being a problem. Now, Nehemiah deals with all that. They, they build the wall. They've got a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other, and all of the book of Nehemiah takes place. Well, at the end of it, it identifies the fact, in, 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 earlier in the book, that one of the priests, one of the sons of the high priest, marries a daughter of Sanballat. The Bible tells us that in the book of Nehemiah, and it also tells us at the, in the last and the final chapter of Nehemiah that Nehemiah says that I had to expel this son of the high priest from Jerusalem because he would not annul the marriage with Sanballat's daughter. And so he's cast aside. And as far as what we know biblically, that's kind of the end of the story, but historically we know more of the story. Josephus recorded and other historians recorded that the name of this son of the high priest was Manasseh. Sorry, Manasseh, no offense. Uh, and so we have a Manasseh here this morning. Uh, was Manasseh and he refused and he was kicked out of Jerusalem. And Sanballat took his son-in-law and brought him back to Samaria and made him the high priest over Samaria. And on Mount Gerizim built for him a temple to preside in corporate public worship uh, to mimic that which was in Jerusalem. And that temple stood historically for about 200 years uh, until it was finally destroyed uh, 100 or 200 years or so before the birth of Christ. So by the time you get here to the woman at the well, you have this woman who says, that mountain is where our fathers say that we're to worship. So what is this mountain? This mountain is a mountain 
that is significant historically, and I'm going to give you some details about that in a moment, but it is a place where are the ruins of the temple that was famous in their worship for a couple of hundred years. And they're worshiping on or around the ruins of the temple along with the high places. And essentially they've reduced God to the worship of God to being a God of the land. In other words, it's just like any other God that they would worship in the high places rather than the one true uh, and living God. And so when she says, you have no dealings with the Samaritans, these are the problems that the Jews have with the Samaritans. The Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses, as scripture. They did not accept the writings of the prophets. They did not accept the writings of David and Psalms. They, that whatever was available up to that point in history, historically, they did not accept it. They only accepted the first five books. Uh, and they governed everything by that. And this place that they chose on Mount Gerizim was not an un, just a random act or a random choice. It is a place that is steeped in a lot of important biblical uh, events. For example, in, in Genesis chapter 12, you have recorded when God comes to Abraham and promises that I'm going to give you this land. It, it takes place in Shechem or Shechem. Depending on the spelling and where you read of it, uh, that is around this area. And the mountain is overlooking that city and the cities around it. The city of Sychar, the city of Shechem. Uh, and so in Genesis 12, you have Abraham worshiping God, building an altar on Mount Gerizim. Then in Genesis 33, you have Jacob, who has now had a re-encounter. He's been uh, essentially serving his uncle uh, and, and for 20 years and uh, is, comes out with his four wives and their children, and he has to confront Esau. Uh, and he meets with Esau. And after that meeting with Esau, he builds an altar. Uh, again, it's on Mount Gerizim. Uh, then in Genesis 37, Jacob, and it references that here, uh, is, is in, in our text where this is the ground uh, where, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And you see in G Genesis 37 uh, where jo Jacob is giving this land to Joseph and Joseph's brothers are despising of him. And this is the place where they essentially take him, sell him into slavery into Egypt uh, and, and cast him uh, aside. Uh, then you see in Joshua chapter 20 that it's one of the six cities of refuge. It is a place uh, that God gave them. If you uh, committed manslaughter, you could go here until the high priest died. You could be safe here as long as you stayed uh, within the city. That's here at Mount Gerizim. Uh, then you see uh, it is a place in Joshua chapter 8 where when they're early in the conquest of the promised land, uh, where they would come and they would rehearse the promises of God. They would essentially, almost like, uh, it's, a, it's a super wild card weekend in the NFL. So you watch the, the teams before the game start and uh, they're all chanting and hopping around like a bunch of fools in their little huddle before the games and they're all like giving each other speeches to get everybody amped up and just hyped up. It's kind of that idea where they, they would get together and rehearse, the, the, rehearse the, the promises of God but as they would go into battle, Mount Gerizim. Uh, and so it is the place where Joshua gave his final, uh, his final address, his farewell address uh, in Joshua chapter uh, number 24 in its entirety uh, to the nation of Israel. It takes place at Mount Gerizim. So this is a place that, they are, that they've set aside the Samaritans for worship uh, that has a lot of ties to their history as Israelites. And then they added a lot of stuff to it. 
that is extra biblical and really just kind of weird. And by the way, if you use the Bible instead of preach the Bible, you're going to come up with weird ideas. You're going to come up with things that are going to mislead you from what God's intent is. What were some of those things? And these are passed down through historical writings and, uh, and different Bible scholars and commentators that have done much deeper research than what I would do or, or have done. Uh, but what were some of those things? Well, some of the speculative claims that they would make the Samaritans about this place where our fathers say we must worship, where we ought to worship, were that it was the original place of the Garden of Eden. Now, we don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, God kept that a secret. Uh, I think if you look geographically, what, geographically at what it states, that it's probably submerged under the Persian Gulf somewhere. Uh, but that's just my opinion, and I could very well be wrong. Uh, but they preached and taught that it was here, which meant that Adam was formed from Gerizim's dust. And so that enhances its significance. Then they believed it to be the final resting place of Noah's Ark. They believed and taught that it was the place of Noah's first post-alluvian or post-flood sacrifice. This is where uh, Noah came and offered sacrifice. They believed that it was a place that Abraham would be with Melchizedek and uh, that he offered Isaac rather than Mount Moriah. They believed that it was a place that Jacob had his dream where he saw uh, the angels descending up and down the ladder into heaven. Uh, all these are bold claims, but they're not biblical claims. They're distortions of truth. So why is that so important, Pastor? Because Jesus said to her, you must worship in spirit and in truth. What is the context? What is the problem he's addressing? He's addressing the misuse and the misinterpretation, the incomplete work of Scripture uh, that they would embrace and their history. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What's he saying? He's saying, you're saying your fathers say this. I'm telling you that you don't know and they didn't know what true worship is. That they don't understand truth. But true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth in verse number 23. So what does that mean? Worshiping in spirit and truth. Let's define some terms so that we understand what Jesus is communicating. I'm going to give these to you very quickly. Worship. Worship, literally the word used here means to kiss the hand. And so we think of that, we see that kiss the hand, we think of, uh, you know, a gentleman coming to a lady when they greeted in uh, times of chivalry and taking her hand and kissing that hand as a gesture of, uh, of welcome, of homage, respect. But, but literally it means like a dog licking his master's hand. So when we talk about worship, we're talking about complete submission. In Eastern culture, and you still see this, the Muslims practice this, uh, whenever they have their times of prayer uh, to Allah, but in their Eastern culture, which they lived in, in which they would have practiced similar things, it is to fall upon the knees and to touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. So when we talk about worship, we're talking about adoration. I adore you, God, and I am completely submitted and surrendered to you. I have no... Uh, pride or dignity of my own. It's all yours. I'm coming to you as, as the lowest of form 
in awe that you would even give me an audience with you. And it is an expression of extreme love, which is followed by extravagant or, ex or extravagant love followed by extreme submission. And so I cannot truly worship God if, would I, not, if I don't love him to the extreme, to the point that I am completely surrendered and obedient to his commands and his will. Now we fail, but what's our heart toward him? Genuine worship has a heart toward him. True worshipers must worship. What is that? I love you, I adore you, I bow down before you, and I'll do whatever you command me to do, my Father. I'll honor you. Must worship in spirit. The word spirit here, it's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. It just simply means a current of air or a breath. It is the essence of all that's within us expressing out. It is that part of us that died in the garden at the fall and that's regenerated by the Holy Spirit when we put our faith and trust in Christ. I cannot worship in my own mind, my own will, my own power. I must worship uh, with God. In truth, Listen, we live in a time uh, where everybody just thinks that they can write their own truth, whatever the truth is. Whatever you want the truth to be, that's the truth for you. And if you go do it, well, you can think that it's a truth that you can fly, but if you jump off the top of the building, you're going to fall to the ground and get hurt. You can believe it, but it doesn't make it true. When we talk about truth, we're talking about what actually is, what really is, what is an actual fact. Now listen, I'm not talking about in a political sense. Both parties present things as fact that are very twisted and very distorted. In, in essence, the political world in our country treats genuine facts the way that a lot of preachers and Christians treat the Bible. It is, it is twisted and distorted and manipulated to prove the point that they want to prove and to advance the ideas and the agenda that they want to advance rather than just at its face value. Here's the fact. In truth, in fact, in the way that it is. Now, subjectively, it means the candor of mind which is free from affection, pretense, simulation, falsehood, and deceit. In other words, I'm coming to the Bible. I'm coming to worship God without prejudice, without preconceived ideas, without already having made my mind up as to what I wanted to say, without the, the embrace of false doctrine and trying to prove false doctrine because it's convenient to the way that I want it to be. Ellicott's commentary states that, it, that sincerity is not a test of acceptable worship, but it is requisite. In other words, just because I'm sincere doesn't make it truthful. Just because I'm sincere doesn't make it genuine worship. Worship must be sincere, but sincerity doesn't guarantee worship. I must worship in truth. I must accept God for who he is and how he presents himself and what he says he would be. So I have to worship in spirit and truth. To worship in spirit and truth, simply put, is this. It is to coming into harmony with the nature of God. It is offering him adoration and honoring him with an extravagant love and extreme submission. That's essentially worship. It is coming in spirit and truth. I'm in harmony with God and what God's word says and who God says he is. I'm in harmony with that. In other words, I have come into agreement with God. I have not tried to force God into agreement with me. I'm in agreement with him. 
Now, the woman says, and begin in verse 20, our fathers. Notice in verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. What's he doing here? It's subtle, but notice what he's doing. He's shifting her attention. He's lifting her thoughts above a place to a person. He's lifting her from religion to a savior, from religion to a person. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. Does that relationship bring us together to do what the outside world would look at and say, yeah, those are religious activities? Of course it does. But what we do here is either worship or religious activity based upon our individual relationships with our Father in heaven. God's interested in relationship. Jesus knew that within a generation, the temple at Jerusalem would be just as extinct as the temple on Mount Gerizim. He knew and understood that oh, what was coming. Verse number four, or chapter four and verse 23, he draws her mind from a place to a person. True worship must be in the spirit. Judaism was largely the, wor the worship of the letter rather than the spirit of the law. We're going to deal with that a lot more fully tonight in the evening service. Real worship had to be in truth or in harmony with God. Samaritanism was largely a worship of the false. They just worshiped a lot of things that they were so far off base off at this point that it had no, no resemblance of, uh, of, of true worship. Worship, and we worship in spirit because of what he is, but in truth because of what we are. I need truth to guide me. Richard Foster wrote this, worship is our response to the overtures of love from, a, from the heart of the Father. We are simply responding to God's love whenever we uh, reach back to him and worship. So three thoughts about this, and I'm going to give these to you really quickly. Number one, worship begins with new life. If I've not put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I can't worship God. I can engage in religious activity, but I can't truly worship him. I must worship him in spirit. And without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God in my life, I have no worship to offer him. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but, by, uh, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is that renewative work, that resurrection of our dead spirit that takes place. It is a supernatural work of God. Just as it was a supernatural act of God that Jesus was born of a virgin and the supernatural act of God that he rose from the grave, the salvation of every soul is a supernatural act of God in our hearts. I can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, no amount of candle lighting, praying or whatever can do it. What's necessary is my, uh, is my allowing God to resurrect a dead spirit within me. Regeneration makes worship possible. My friends, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be a good person that has high morals, that, that is honest and has great integrity, that's a positive influence in the world. Uh, but simply put, until you've been reborn, none of that matters. You can't worship. You can engage in religious activity, but you can't genuinely worship. Regeneration makes worship possible. Secondly, regeneration makes me wholly his wholly, entirely his. When I talk about being regenerated, that means that I am all God's. First Corinthians chapter number six, 
he tells us uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 19 and 20, we, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's not mine. I'm not mine. I'm his. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Worship is the believer's response to all that they are, of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is and says and does. And so I want to worship him in spirit and truth. Secondly, worship must be in harmony with the Holy Spirit. True worship must be in harmony with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins to tell us, he says, don't be troubled. I'm going away. Don't let that bother you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, it's to your advantage. It's for your benefit. And if I go, I'm going to send you another comforter. That is the Holy Spirit of God. Worship must be in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit is within us. When I trusted Jesus as my Savior, he gave me the Holy Spirit. Now, the woman at the well won't experience this fully till Pentecost. But at this point, uh, today we understand that we've been given in this age the Holy Spirit of God. In verses 16 and 17 it says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth within you and shall be in you. So he gives us at salvation the Holy Spirit to indwell us. The Spirit's within us. I must be in harmony with him to truly worship. The Spirit will teach us. I, can't, I, I can study and I can learn a lot, but I really need the Holy Spirit to truly teach me uh, what God's trying to communicate. And he tells us in verse 26 of four, chapter 14, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's just simply reminding us and teaching us what Jesus said. This is what Jesus gave. And so worship must be in harmony with the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, I told you this would be quick. Worship must be in harmony with the truth. If it's not in line with the truth of God's person, personality, and word, then it's not truth. It may sound good, but it's not truth. It must be in, worship, in harmony with the truth. And it must be in harmony, first of all, what I mean by that, with the nature of God. In John chapter 14 and verse 21, he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and that loveth me, he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. I will demonstrate or show myself unto him. What's he stating here? He's, it's the extravagant obedience and love. It's worship. I love you. I adore you. I'm surrendered to you. Genuine worship must be in harmony with the nature of God. And then it must be in harmony with the plan of God. We're not here to live our lives according to what we want and to fulfill our desires. We're here to do the will of God. We're here to follow the plan that God set in place, that Jesus demonstrated for us. In chapter 14 and verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So what are we saying this morning? Simply this. True worship is loving God, submitting myself to him, and accepting the truth as he's given it to me. 
regardless of how that my thinking about it is impacted by my past personal experience, by the culture and society around me, all of that's irrelevant. It's just all about Jesus. And true worship and true worshipers lock out all of that influence and take their Bible and the Holy Spirit of God and lift their praise to Jesus and the Father and come into harmony and agreement with them. Religious exercises of worship are futile if they're not accepted by him. So, Pastor, I come to worship. I expend a lot of energy and time worshiping. What good is it if it's unacceptable to the one to whom you offer the worship? We could go look at passages in Isaiah, and at some point we may do that in the weeks ahead, where they did everything the way that God said, but he still didn't accept it because it wasn't in spirit and truth. I don't want to waste my time, and I don't want to waste your time gathering every Sunday at 11 o'clock to offer praise and prayer to God that he rejects. I want to come united with my brothers and sisters in Christ with an expectation that God's going to speak to me, with joy that God's going to hear and answer prayer, with the knowledge that as the word of God is opened and my heart is open to it, that God will show me life-changing things about himself that will, that will impact me regardless of what's going on in the world around me. Jesus comes and he says, I love you. A.W. Chozer said this, no man gives anything acceptable to God until he has first given himself in love and sacrifice. The Apostle Paul said, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. What is worship? When I come to God and say, God, I'm going to forget everything that I've heard about you. Show me you. I'm going to block out what the world says about you. I'm going to block out the hurt and I'm going to block out the problems. I'm going to block out all of the teaching that's been false in my life. All the rejection. And I just want to know you. You love me. I love you. I'm honoring you. Reveal to me who you are, not what I think you are. Show me yourself, and I will sing your praises. And the proof that my singing is real will be manifested in my life and how I live you outside of these walls. My friends, Jesus comes to this woman. She's sitting here. She's rejected. She's cast aside. And he says, hey, I've got something to say to you. God loves you. I want to give you eternal life. But before I can do that, I've got to confront some sin in your life. Now that you see that I know about your sin, you understand that that sin has to be dealt with. Here's the truth of who God is. You can't do anything about that, but I can't. It's a spring of well living up in me. But you say, my fathers say, your fathers 
your fathers told you to come to a mountain and to offer sacrifices on a broken altar to a false god. Get your eyes off of the place. You're so worried about Jerusalem and Gerizim that you can't see God. Get your eyes off the place. Get your eyes on the one. My friends, should we come and sing with all of our hearts? I think if we get this, the, 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 this there would be, if we understand this, it's not that we didn't sing well this morning. You did. But if we really get this next Sunday when we sing, it would sound like about three times as many people in here. Because we truly have come to understand who and what God is and where we are and our need. And it's, I love you, and I'm going to share it and show it with everybody. I don't care who hears. I just want to honor my Father. He loves you. By the way, Jesus said, the Father seeketh such to worship him. He's seeking that kind of worship from you, from me. Amen. He's worthy. Are we willing to get our eyes off of what we know and what we have always done and turn our attention to the one who has demonstrated his love for us?